This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, including a copy of The Myths of Creativity, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Les McEwen, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm Les McEwen. I'm president and CEO of Predictable Success, which used to be me, basically. Uh, it's now me and my son. And what we do is help organizations that have reached a stage of stagnant growth. And we help them break through to the next stage. It, it's fun to be able to say we, isn't it? I feel like a lot of times when you're starting something, you say we when it's just you for a long time. And then when it actually is we, it's so much more fun. Yeah, it's the British uh, royal way, which we've got very accustomed to. Um, and in fact, I should I should fess up that there are not four of us um, fully employed, and there are a team of about four or five folks that we have virtually. So uh, when I decided to let my son join me last year, um, which is a story in and of itself, um, that was a fundamental shift for me. I was literally, uh, by choice, uh, a woman man for 17 years. I sold a consulting firm that had got to about 120 people in 1998, and I just swore I didn't want to employ people anymore. And then uh, my son joined me last year. He's 30 years of age. He's full of piss and vinegar, and we are on the ghost track, and he's hiring people like there's no tomorrow. So the business really is a we, and it's a whole different world for me. Uh, that's another story, but it's great fun. Hmm. And and not only are you taking on new uh, employees in the consulting arm, you just keep taking on new books and new book challenges. And so, <laughs> as such, less less longtime listeners will remember is an old old friend of the, of the podcast because he came on with predictable success. He came on with the second book, the synergist, and now we're here today to talk about the third and final book in this Predictable Success trilogy, Do Lead, Share Your Vision, Inspire Others, Achieve the Impossible. Les, I, I wonder if you could talk about, for those that are, are literally just tuning in for this one, tell us about the other two books and how this one sort of plays in what the trilogy is about. Sure. Uh, so the first book, Predictable Success, maps uh, essentially my life's work uh, of discovering that we've got um, organizations have got seven stages that they go through in growth. And uh, we probably don't have time to go through all of, the, all of that side of things, but you've got an excellent podcast where we talked about it at some length. Um, and that's what I've been helping organizations with is they get stuck in one of those seven stages and I help them get out of that. The second book was, to be frank, uh, a major part of that model that I uh, scissored out in order to make the first book predictable success of a life that people would purchase. Uh, and it talks about the four underlying key leadership styles, um, visionary operator, processor, synergist, that determine which stage an organization settles into. What I've discovered over the years is that it's it, it, people think, you know, it's our product portfolio, it's the demographic of our customers, it's the industry, it's the economy, all sorts of stuff that, that force their business into a certain stage of growth. What I've discovered is again and again, it's actually the underlying uh, leadership style inherent in the business that has the biggest impact. And so the second book, The Synergist, is all about those leadership styles. This third book, uh, Do Lead, is really, if you want to think about um, predictable success and the synergist as a sort of a, uh, a B2B uh, communication, it's me helping business owners and business leaders um, build uh, growth back into their uh, um, enterprises. 
Building is really a B2C book. I've, I've long wanted to write a book for everybody in any organization who's even vaguely interested in helping uh, their enterprise achieve some common goals. And so do lead is for everybody, uh, literally everybody. It's the whole thesis of the book is that leadership is not an elite act. Um, and that's why I wanted to write it. Uh, so uh, it sort of sprung upon me the opportunity to do it about a year ago. And I grabbed it with both hands. I had the energy from somewhere. You know what it's like to commit mentally and emotionally to writing a book. I found myself with the reserves to do that. And uh, here it is. Uh, it launches in May of this year. Yeah, I, I must say I'm actually jealous of how you're able to muster the energy to, to do all these sort of things. I uh, I know my uh, my book came out and I just people ask, oh, what's next? And you go, what's next? I'm going to relax for a while and, and wait until – and unless it seems to just be always turning them out. And I, I love what you were saying earlier about how this one – the, the predictable success and the synergist, I felt like especially predictable success was targeted at senior leaders or entrepreneurs. And I know that that led to a huge, um, you've done a lot of work with Inc. and speaking directly to entrepreneurs. The, the synergist could also be that sort of business owner, senior leader, maybe senior leadership team. But I do love that about, about Do Lead. It's focusing in on, uh, there's, in fact, there's even a chapter on everyday leadership. So it's everybody and everyday uh, leadership. And it, but it centers around those four uh, leadership styles you talk about. Tell us a, a bit about each one so that we can have a framework for, for getting this uh, Do Lead everyday leadership idea. Sure. So uh, what I discovered, and I have to make the point uh, that uh, everything that I write about is observational. There's, uh, there, I like to tell people that no interns have been harmed uh, in or even used in the developing developing the model that I share. It's all based on just watching uh, the many hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses that I've worked with, the 42 that I personally launched during my career as a serial entrepreneur. So it, this is all observational stuff. And in essence, what I've discovered is we turn up in one of three styles. We arrive in group and team situations, uh, and we're talking mostly in the context here of work, but it applies to any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals. So this applies to not-for-profits. It applies to you know your kids' uh, little league. It applies to a book club. Uh, but uh, uh, we're going to talk in the context of business. We all show up in one of three natural styles. Visionary, and that's somebody who likes to think big, uh, think in the long term, plan, at uh, 30,000 feet, likes to whiteboard a lot, likes to talk a lot, likes to communicate, likes to argue, you know, that type of person who isn't really happy with a discussion unless they can jump up, grab a marker and go to a uh, flip chart or a whiteboard. And they're great starters. They, they are very good at coming up with innovative solutions to problems. The difficulty with the visionary model is um, visionaries tend to lose interest as soon as they've seen what the solution is. They want to move on to starting something new it's what I call the squirrel syndrome. If you've seen Pixar's great little movie, Up, uh, you know, it's like Doug the dog. He's, he's up for the adventure and he's with the team until the minute he sees a squirrel and then he's gone up a tree. And visionaries tend to be like that. So they tend to work very closely with uh, what I call operators. That's the second uh, natural style. And operators are sort of the symbiotic um, opposite of visionaries. They just want to do stuff. They want to get stuff done. They're never happier than when they've been given a task and they're told to go do it and they're left alone. They don't like being micromanaged. And they're really the MacGyvers of the business world. You know, you tell them to, to you know, go out. We need, we've got a bit of a cash crunch, Joe. We need 60 grand. Well, they'll go out and they'll make it happen and it won't be pretty, but they'll, they'll get it done. And then thirdly, uh, the third style that we tend to show up with is the processor mode. And that's the person who thinks more about systems and processes uh, more focused on doing things right 
than the vision of an operator who are just concerned about doing the right thing. They just want to please the customer and any, you know, it doesn't really matter how we do it. The processor is very concerned about how we do it. And so I've noticed that we all have a mix of, which most of us tend to lead with one of those styles. We can usually move into a secondary style if we have to. So I'm, a, for example, a visionary processor, which is not at all unusual in consultants. Uh, I like the idea of coming up with innovative solutions, but I also like putting the systems and processes in place for others to be able to sustain and scale that. But I'm not, I don't have any much operator in me. That's why I'm a consultant. I really don't like getting my hands dirty and doing hard work. So I prefer people to write checks for, for getting big ideas from me. And then finally, the synergist style was the one that fell into place at the end. I, I, I had to wait almost two decades to really get my head wrapped around this. And the synergist style is a learned style. We learn it over time. And really what the synergist style is all about are visionaries, operators, and processors learning that when I'm in a group or team situation, I really have to be careful not to allow the constraints of being a visionary operator processor uh, overriding my ability to let the team come up with the best optimal solution. In other words, if, if, I'm, not, if I'm just an outline visionary, I'm going to always be pushing my team for visionary solutions, same for the operator, same for the processor. And what I've noticed is high-powered teams develop visionary synergists, operator synergists, processor synergists, who transcend those constraints of just being a visionary operator or processor. You know, so I, I guess one of my biggest questions, like you were saying, everybody has a, has a dominant one and everybody sort of has a maybe a backup one. But one of my biggest things is obviously, you know, the, the consulting role, that visionary sort of operator idea. But how do you know when it's the right situation for your style of leadership? In essence, how do you know when to kind of call, answer the call to lead and, and figure out, hey, this is exactly a fit for my style versus this is not something I'm good at. I need to defer leadership to someone else. Well, you know, funny enough, one of the reasons I wrote Do Lead is that the filter, in order to be effective, what, what, what the, at the heart of your question, David, is, you know, when can I best and, and most effectively lead? And the filter that works, is most effective, is not so much looking for when is it most appropriate for me to lead, but rather to think of it the other way around, which is when would my natural style be least helpful here? So let me give you an example. Um, visionaries have a tendency to always want to swing for the fences. So come in, they're usually very effective at the start of a meeting when there's a brainstorming element to what's going on, and then they bail um, towards the end. Now, if they've got any status or authority in the room, uh, who were the other people that were the audience for my first two books, that's fine because they just get up and leave and leave everybody else to the details, the problems that come alongside that, but we, we don't need to get into that now. But the folks that I'm addressing and do lead are, are you know, people, visionaries throughout the organization who've got to sit there for the rest of the meeting. They, they don't have the status to just get up and leave. And what I'm saying is you've got to learn the, state, the, the, the parts of the group and team discussions where you're going to be harming the ability of the group to come up with a good solution by forcing your style on that. So when do you track back from the visionary style? And that's the point at which we're starting to move towards solutions. That's when you've got to bring the synergist side to the fore. And here's a classic example of visionary. Their eyes glaze over whenever somebody says, okay, let's, can we turn to the spreadsheet and crunch through some data? That drives them crazy. Well, what I'm showing in Doolead is that's the very point which if you're a visionary, you don't, and you want to, if you want to lead, you don't get to bail, which is what most of us visionaries do at that point. We sort of find other things to multitask with, 
you know, our eyes begin to shrink back in our head. We start to um, stab at our, our, our smartphones to see if there's a text we can reply to. And bailing out at that point is not optimal. But it's also not on to jump in with your visionary style and try to pull everybody back up to brainstorm. You've got to learn to grind out the work. And, and it reverses the case with the processor who's just waiting for the opportunity to throw spreadsheets to everybody. And until that, offer, that, that point of the meeting comes, they're, you know, usually on the flip side, whenever we're doing the brainstorming, that's when they're absenting themselves. And what I'm showing is if you want to lead, you don't get to do that. You've got to step into the synergist role at that point, which is a learned role so you can learn how to do this. And you've got to focus during the brainstorming session. Not, and, and what won't work is if you focus with the processor style, your natural style, because what you'll do is you'll start to nitpick um, the brainstorming session to death um, which isn't optimal. So that, what, that's what I'm showing folks is that the synergist, the learned synergist style really becomes the secret to continuing to lead at times when your natural style is not appropriate. Hmm. No, I, I love the framework there of maybe it's not about when is it time for me to lead, but it's the realization that my style could actually be more harmful than good at times. And so how do I learn to, to mm -hmm. adapt and how to sort of synergize that? I, I also love, if I may, uh, sort of switching gears, but also in, in this book, there's a great chapter on failure, which is at the scene, I feel like at the senior leadership and the, and the, um, the middle manager level failure is this awful thing. And yet from the entry level, we only ever sort of notice the failures in our leaders. Uh, and the truth is it's not about fail if you failed or you didn't fail. Every, everybody at every level of an organization has failed at some point. It's about how you overcome that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I have to say, say that um, one of the things that I loathe is the fail fast um, mantra and the little cult that's arrived around that. And I wanted to put the chapter in Julie that, that looks at failure in order to just simply return it to the position it should be in how we look at leadership, which is, hey, you're going to fail. That's fine. Let's not make it a big song and dance. Uh, you know, the folks around you have the responsibility. Uh, and don't forget, I'm speaking to people at every level in the organization here, not necessarily senior leaders. Um, your organization has a responsibility to make sure that you can fail within parameters that doesn't back the ranch. Uh, and so, you know, if things go a little awry, that's fine. But what I'm not saying in the chapter in Overcoming Failure uh, is, you know, go out and fail like crazy, fail off and fail fast. I think that's just such a, a bunch of blatant nonsense um, that it's done a big disservice. And, and frankly, it's a hangover from or a spillover from the tech world, um, which is an awful lot to be laid at his door for screwing up concepts of both business growth and leadership. So uh, to stop my whinge section, <laughs> um, what I'd like to uh, help people with is, first of all, just try to anticipate failure. Secondly, how to recognize it really fast, and I give some um, tips and techniques as to how to know when failure is coming along so that you don't linger there too long. And then how do you manage yourself out of it whenever it's happened? Uh, and, and, you know, finally, how do you learn from it? You know, how do you have a constructive post-mortem uh, post rather than, you know, those passive-aggressive diagnostics that so often happen in teams where we use – failure becomes an excuse to allocate blame. Uh, how do we move past all of that? And, and I'm really just trying to put failure in the context that it should be in, which is it's just like something that happens. So let's accept that and move on. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. And yet I feel like so many leaders, especially actually the way that we respond 
to that failure sort of determines whether or not we're, we're still in leadership. There are very countless examples of very public failures that only got made worse when the leader in question didn't necessarily acknowledge them as and kept trying to sort of spin it or like, you you know, you talk about this, oh, well, it's all in the service of failing faster. No, we're not. acknowledge it, learn, move on. Yeah, I mean, the the whole, uh, you know, again, I think it's something that's crept in the last five years, maybe 10 years, the whole concept of mistakes were made, you know, so we screw up and somebody, and somebody stands up and says, uh, I'm sorry if this offended anybody, you know, as if there's a possibility that it didn't. Uh, or, you know, I acknowledge mistakes were made. There's just such a fudge uh, mentality around failure that has happened. And one of the reasons is because institutionally we use failure to club people over the head. Uh, I put a lot of that on the, on the feet of journalists and media, but, you know, the reality is we do it passive aggressively in organizations as well. Um, and if we could just get a mature approach that says, hey, what happened? I, my very first business mentor, a guy called William Fitch, rest his soul, I remember uh, William taught me a big principle, which is get very upset over the tiny things because in essence what you're doing is mentoring and coaching people to maintain high levels of excellence. And don't get upset about the very big things because nobody wanted that kind of thing to happen. Let's just find out how it happened and fix it. And uh, I remember he used to get ballistic over, you know, all my new things like proofreading. Of, of, I was in a CPA's office, proofread, proofreading all kinds of, there was a spare comma somewhere he would go a little upset about that. And I had to turn up one day and tell him that I have absolutely screwed up a bank negotiation on the part of our biggest client. And I thought he was going to kill me. And he, he said, sit down, let's talk about this. Tell me how it happened and how we can prevent it ever happening again. He didn't even, you know, his emotional state didn't even rise up. And I think just that way we approach failure can be can be a very strong, positive development of leadership skills instead of being this silly, passive-aggressive game, the game that we play, not just with others, but often with ourselves. I, I absolutely love that mindset of you know, be really, really sort of neurotic about the little things. The big things will usually take care of themselves. We know that that's sort of an old cliche, but I love that idea of perspective of nobody wanted the big things that, that went bad to go bad. The little things you might have wanted to be that way or not realize that it can't be that way. The big things, everybody agrees. Let's just learn and, and move on. Yeah. And, and, and thanks to, thanks to William, I can look at a set of, uh, accounts and see a transposed figure or read a piece of text and see a grammatical error without it making me wince. I mean, thank you William, for that. Well, that works pretty well for, for a person who's written three books. And it actually, it, it's a great it's a great segue, if we may, into my question uh, less about the book and more about you, because you're probably looking for typos in all of them. But what are you reading these days? What are you reading right now? Uh, so I don't read business books, uh, by and large, unless something has... Uh, struck me that I need to or want to, but I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm too easily guilty of plagiarism. I mean, I just want to put my hand up and say that I read stuff. I stopped reading Seth Godin's blog, you know, years ago because I just discovered that two months after I'd read a, a really brilliant piece of insightful writing by him, I had imagined that I'd come up with this notion myself, and that that has happened so often. And, and the second reason is that I'm going to be really honest, David. Apart from you and I. There's an awful lot of really bad business books out there. So I try to read around uh, history, biography. And I mean, right now I'm reading, yeah, I mean, this is just going to mean nothing to anybody. There's a guy in England called Ferdinand Mount. He's uh, part of the conservative uh, political party uh, apparatus there. He's a member of one of the oldest families in England. And he's just written this hilarious uh, uh, memoir of his life. And this guy just basically knew everybody who was anybody in the uh, 
late 50s, 60s, 70s when I grew up, and it's a wonderful read. And I like looking for insights um, out of people's lives, so that's what I'm reading right now. Hmm. No, sounds sounds interesting. And there's always, you know, I find I've had several guests that that uh, talk about that. They, oh, I don't read a lot of business books, but I read a lot of history, read a lot of whatever. There are still so many lessons that that line up with what we know about leading a successful business. That line up with the psychology of how to influence people. There's a lot of lessons there. So um, don't don't and and you are one of the enlightened ones that realizes that that the vast majority of business book pub, business books published could be a ten to fifteen page article, and then we could all move on with our lives. But it is what it is. Well, speaking of moving on with our lives on those 10-page books, speaking of moving on with our lives, what are you what are you what's next for you? How are you moving on with your life? I know that the 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 Predictable Success trilogy, if you will, is over, but there are more books in the works. But what else beyond the books are are you up to? Um it's really about building a business. You know, um a year ago or I think months ago now, um my son David who by that point uh, was in his fourth year with Accenture back in the UK, uh, called me up and told me he was moving on. And uh, we had a conversation that ended up with him coming to join me here. Um, he, he had uh, interned with me for many years when he was going through college and I'd wanted him to go work and you know make his own bones elsewhere. And he did that and became a very successful consultant in the UK. And I was delighted that he um, thought about talking to me and he's sitting across the road, he's uh, across the room from me. Right now, the two of us are just back from a week on the road. And it's that's, not aw- that's not awkward at all, then, to talk about him when no, he's sitting across the room from you. <laughs> no, it's not, because he's still my son, so I'm allowed to say anything I want, anything whatsoever. Um, but it's all about supporting him in the growth of the business uh, by bringing David on board. One of the things, funny, we were just talking about this yesterday um, over by lunch. Um, one of the things that I acceded to was essentially shifting my business model completely from being a one-man band to becoming a fully fledged business. And, you know, you and I just talked about the use of we, and I can now literally do that. We are a full fledged business for people and growing. And uh, we've got a marvelous roster of clients that we love working with. Uh, We've got uh, a great pipeline of of super business, always looking for more. And it's just growing that business. We're moving into um, training some associates to do what I do. Uh, It's just a very, very exciting time for me. So uh, I'm loving it right now. Yeah, well, and we will be keeping uh, tabs on your we, looking for uh, more awesome books on the way. But in the meantime, check out Do Lead, Share Your Vision, Inspire Others, Achieve the Impossible. Less. Thank third time is still a charm. Thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. My pleasure, David. Thank you.